Hey, uh, let's uh, begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you again for the scriptures, for our salvation that we do not deserve, did not earn, and can only receive by faith. We thank you for the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who accomplished the work designed from eternity past. We pray that as we go on in our Christian lives, that your word would be our absolute standard. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Interestingly, I was going to go over the, uh, some of the framework tonight, and I will. Uh, but uh, Art uh, loaned me this issue of uh, Israel, my glory. And on the front page of this, uh, very interesting, um, kind of a good introduction to why we need the framework. And, uh, of course, uh, last week or a week ago, I mentioned when I introduced Dr. Kate, who was from a, um, a mission group that worked with Muslims, that he had been called by Time magazine, who wanted to school be on his mission. And, of course, he stonewalled them, just like all the other Christian missions are stonewalling time and stonewalling against talking to any of these people because we know exactly what they're after. They want to come out, I guess if time hasn't, they're going to come out with this issue. Uh, hammering Christian missionaries is a great source of um, the, disturbing the peace in the Middle East. Um, you know, the gospel is such a big threat now. Um, you know, how it's so dangerous to people to hear that, those words. Um, but here is an example of the rising tide of anti-Christian uh, and really quite stupid and foolish and unintelligent statements by people who ought to know better. Here, for example, is one who was the former director of the U.S. Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms. Um, the day has long passed when we can afford to ignore the threat that is posed by individuals who believe they are subject only to the laws of their God and not those of our government. Now, of course, in context, that might have been with it. Wackos from Waco, but um, point is that if he, if this director of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms had been well enough read and had been educated enough, he would have noticed that the laws of the government are derivative of the laws of God. I mean, historically, and I think this is a problem with the whole legal community. Uh, that there's something missing in their preparation. I don't think they really study history very well. If it is, it's some probably two and a half hour lecture in year one of law school or something. But lawyers don't seem to understand the basis of the very law they talk about all the time. And it's, there's no question that the basis of law comes out of the Word of God and the Ten Commandments in the Western tradition, I mean. Our laws are basically inherited from Great Britain. Great Britain's laws are inherited from the Christian Christendom in Europe. I mean, come on. Everybody knows this. It's studied history. This isn't some controversial thing that we just thought up in some fundamentalist church last weekend. This is something that any reputable historian knows very well. So for somebody to say that it's a, it's a big threat for people who are subject only to the laws of their God and not those of our government. Well, I can understand where he might be coming from, but you've got to be careful. The laws of the government, the right to make laws, is derivative of the laws of God. Period. So if you don't have laws of God as a standard, then laws that men make are only relative. They're only the product of a dictator who imposes his arbitrary rules on society, or they're a product of the 51% who vote. But the 51% aren't always right. We know that from the scriptures. 51% were wrong 95% of the time in all ancient Israel. So the point is that 51% can be a tyranny also. So what's the absolute standard of reference then? It's, it's the word of God. It's the, it's the Ten Commandments. And of course, we have the spectacle now. Uh, and it's going to be interesting to watch in the news uh, of the um, judge. I can't think of his name in Alabama now, um, who has, while he was a state judge, 
had the Ten Commandments in his courtroom and the ACLU. Of course, anything that smacks of God is anathema to the ACLU. And so now, as on the state Supreme Court, he's actually created a monument to the Ten Commandments right in the state Supreme Court building. Well, you thought the ACLU was irritated when he was just a judge. You can imagine how they're irritated now that he's a state judge on the state Supreme Court, of all things. So the federal judge has ordered him to remove the statement, and he has absolutely refused to do it. Now, this could potentially be very interesting because this sets up a conflict between the federal government and the state government. And you remember what happened back in the civil rights era when Governor Faubus of Arkansas ordered the National Guard against the federal marshals in a confrontation between the federal and state authorities. So this could be this could be unfold into a very interesting phenomenon here, because here you have the judge of the Alabama Supreme Court who refuses to adhere to the judicial opinions of a federal court. And so it involves states rights, by the way, it's a resurrection of the civil rights issue. But but apart from the confrontational point. The man is on solid historical grounds. The basis of law is the Ten Commandments. I mean, what is it? It's not Buddha. What is the basis of our Western tradition and our Western law? It's the Ten Commandments. So when you hear these kind of things coming from people, and for some reason it comes out of the legal community, of all the people that should know better, the very people that ought to be guiding us are the very fools that are coming out with this drivel, this anti-historical ignorance. It's really amazing to, to listen to this stuff. Um, here's another good quote. This is Martin Marty, who was a theologian, speaking in Newsweek. The problem isn't with Bush's sincerity, but with his evident conviction that he's doing God's will. Now, isn't that horrible to say? Um, as though the environmentalists, the radical environmentalists, didn't think he was doing God's will. Did Martin Luther King think he was doing God's will? Do the black civil rights leaders think they're doing God's will? Obviously they do. So if they th it's okay for them to think of themselves as doing God's will, but it's wrong for President Bush to think he's doing God's will. You see the arbitrariness of the accusation? Silly. And neither one, Martin Marty, uh, has spent his career undermining the, the authority of Scripture anyway. Um, so one would ask Martin Marty, uh, what do you expect Bush to do? Your will? And what's so great about your will? And in that sense, that's where you, the, the rejoinder is kind of nasty to say this to somebody face to face. But when it comes down to that arrogance that I want my will done, the good reply to that is, well, Jesus impresses me more than you do. And, and you know, let him deal with that rejoinder. Um, here's one from a, a prominent person in the New York Times writing. I tend to disagree with evangelicals on almost everything, and I see no problem with aggressively pointing out the dismissal consequences of this increasing religious influence. Now, it's interesting. These people feel, apparently, that the evangelical crowd is increasing, and apparently it is. Uh, we must be having a political effect, and I think we are compared to when I was young. Um, didn't have any James Dobson on the radio affecting 30 million people every day. So I think there has been a Christian influence, and these people are threatened by that. And that's why we find today it's the New York Times, um, otherwise known as the Baghdad Times, that are, is very carefully assaulting Christians when we take a stand saying that Christian, the Christian God is not the God of Islam. So we have this, uh, they're defending Islam. Now, let's think about that. It's interesting. Would a civil libertarian atheist be free to articulate his atheism in any Muslim country you know? And yet, these are the people in our country who are advocating, uh, let's beat down the evangelicals. Because uh, as one person sarcastically wrote in the paper, you know, these, these evangelicals have got to get going. You know, they have, they, they're way behind the Muslims. We haven't got uh, suicide bombers yet. Uh, we haven't got uh, uh, snipers. We haven't gotten all the terrorist bombing. I mean, Jesus, it seems like the Christian threat has really got to get going. They're not, they're not right there yet with the Muslims. So that's the atmosphere in which we live. And it's going to become increasingly hostile to that, as we pointed out. 
So, why, so it goes back to the framework and why I have tried over the years to put Bible doctrine together, and we'll review that framework. Um, back years ago, I showed you this slide when we started the series. This is actually a depiction of how in World War II, the B-17 bombers used to uh, protect each other against fighter aircraft. And the bombers were to fly in certain formation where their gunners would cover the other guy. And the whole point was that you didn't fly in alone. You flew in in those days with a lot of other friendly bombers by your side. So while one guy was protecting your right side, uh, you could protect his left side. And it was a teamwork effort. And you want to think about that when you think about the various truths of the Bible. Because one truth of the Bible cannot stand by itself. And we'll point this out tonight. You've got to have an interlocking structure like you have in a, in a frame of a building. The beams have to mutually support each other. And that's the way you must think of the truths of Scripture. You cannot sit out here and have some isolated truth of the Bible, some little pet theory, some pet point, and keep pressing it. Because if you do, you're going to find yourself, that whole point is going to be completely surrounded and cut off. For example... Uh, let's suppose uh, you're in some environment where people are assiduously assaulting the scripture as trustworthy. So here you are with a group of folks who think the Bible is just a fairy tale. Um, and you believe in the inspiration and inerrancy of scripture. Well now, how do you handle yourself if you believe in the inerrancy and inspiration authority of Scripture and you're in a hostile environment in which they laughing at the Scriptures as an impossibility? Well, in order to defend the Scriptures, you have to bring in the idea of man created by God in God's image and therefore there's no linguistic reason why God can't talk to man. So you have this this talk. So there's a basis for this. The, the basis for the criticism of the scripture is a view, a low view of language. It's just an evolved grunt system that the monkeys used to use and that man has gradually developed this. And of course, monkeys don't grunt to God. And so it's silly to think that God can talk to man. It's silly to think that God spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai uh, because we all, quote, know that God can't talk to, to, to man. There's this big barrier of communication. So in order to undercut their position, which you have to do, you have to say, well, you have a very faulty view of language. You have a faulty view of man and you have a faulty view of the world. And, and what you do is you spread out. You're not, you're not convincing them yet, but what you're doing is you're building a worldview like Paul did in Acts 17 so that they see that it's, the disagreement isn't just over this book. The disagreement is over the whole nature of the universe. The disagreement is over the nature of man. The disagreement is over what language is all about. There's a wide-ranging disagreement. And usually what happens if you have a halfway intelligent person on the other end of the conversation, by the time you start doing this, they begin to back up and realize, well, uh, we've we got a bigger question here. We can't just be flippant about this. This is a profound difference that's going on here. So you want to keep this picture in mind because that's how the Bible doctrine protects Bible doctrine. That's how you argue with an integrated approach. And on the notes last time, I, I summarized for you the framework. So let's look at that, that last page. And um, we'll go through parts of that framework, at least tonight. Now, this is not all the truth of the scripture, obviously not. But these are key events. So, on the left side of that diagram, those are the key acts of history. On the right side are the doctrines and the truths that come from those events, that are revealed in and through those events. And the reason why you want to look at this diagram with the left and the right columns together is it prevents you from thinking, uh, and what else from thinking, that if you deny the left side, 
if you deny the authenticity, for example, take uh, down to uh, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 up from the bottom, Mount Sinai, and you look over to the right and you see the concepts and truths of, the, of revelation, inspiration, and canonicity are illustrated and revealed through that act of God speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai. And somebody comes along and says it doesn't really matter whether Moses really spoke to God on Mount Sinai. It doesn't really matter whether there was a Mount Sinai. I just believe the doctrine. Well, no. Because then you, the doctrine has no base. It's got to have, have a contact point with history. So you've got to keep the left and the side together. If you release the left side, you're going to destroy the right side. And you have to go. And this, is, this should make you sensitive then to why when people start to undercut the historicity of Scripture, uh, like you have Christians going around saying, well, it really doesn't matter what happened in Genesis 1 and 3. Uh, we can get along without that. That's just a nice story. Well, just a minute. Just a minute here. Let's look at the first two events down there, creation and fall. If those did not take place like the Scripture said, what doctrines, what major doctrinal areas are immediately affected? The whole nature of God. The whole nature of man. The nature of the universe. And the whole issue and the problem of evil and suffering, which everybody says is the big obstacle to Christianity. Well, I can't believe God. God would allow babies to die. See, they always want to use the evil issue. Well, yeah, you've got an evil issue if you don't have the fall. So you've got to hold to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And it's just simply stupidity, absolute stupidity, religious stupidity, to say that, well, I don't care what Genesis 1 11 says. I just believe the rest of the Bible. Well, why believe the rest of the Bible? Why not throw it in the mess? Maybe I have problems with Genesis 32, so I'm going to toss that one. So, so here we are now. We're back to whoever wants to accept whatever chapter of the Bible they're looking at or not accept. So the, the thing is, all these truths hang together. You've got to see that point. And then in this diagram, you want to see that those truths not only hang together, but those truths integrate with history, with real history. That's why it, Christian beliefs affect every area of knowledge. You cannot become a Christian and believe the Word of God as the Word of God and not let it affect everything, including your arithmetic. And if we had time tonight, I could show you that the Bible, in, but there's, a, there's not a religious neutrality to arithmetic. And if there's not religious neutrality in arithmetic, there isn't religious neutrality in any other zone of human knowledge. In every area, the creation is revealing the glory of God. And we are confronted with our God everywhere we go. He's before us, behind us, in every area of the universe that we can explore. He is there, and His glory is there. And for us to deny that and to say there are these gray, neutral zones where it really doesn't matter what you believe is sheer nonsense. And we can't accept that. But that has afflicted uh, the Christian community for a long, long time. This, this, this bizarre idea of a neutrality out there somewhere. Okay, let's look now at some of the um, some other points that we have emphasized over the years. Um, that, and we're seeing the you're hearing some sound effects tonight. Um, it's not Mount Sinai. That's just a cumulonimbus coming in from the west. Um, this is the picture of faith as the non-Christian likes to look at it. And we, unfortunately, are fighting somewhat of an uphill battle here. When you use the word believe, say in the phrase, I believe the Bible, or I believe the Lord Jesus, the problem is that that word today doesn't mean what we, we mean by it. Um, Let's look at the first statement. Here's, here's a picture of the Dictionary of Philosophy. I mean, this is a standard work. Every college, university has this. Belief in something, even though there's an absence of evidence for it. Now, there is the fountainhead for the academia in their view of what faith is. 
Is that the view of Scripture? No, let's just back up a minute and think. If you were having a discussion with someone, and that's what they believe believe means, where would you go in Scripture? Where would you go? There's several places. But where would you go to show them that that's not a biblical definition of faith? Anybody think of a passage of Scripture? Think of this, this last statement. Even though there's an absence of evidence for it, think through from your Bible reading where there's a passage that talks about evidence for belief. Turn to Luke chapter 1. Again, remember Luke was written by Luke, who was a doctor. Now, you can argue, see, see, when you're having a discussion with someone, you can, all you're doing in the discussion is not defending you. Get away from that. You're not defending you. You're defending what the Bible says about itself. That person's free to reject that. Every person's free to reject that. There's no pressure. We're not uh, a bunch of Muslims that are threatening to execute every non-Christian. That's what they think we are. But we believe in freedom of speech, liberty of conscience. You can reject Christ or you can accept it. We're not arguing that. All we're saying is, before you reject it, at least know what it is you're rejecting. Okay? So, Luke says, As many as have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished, just as those in the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed down to us, it seemed fitting for me, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out. So that, verse 4 so that you might know the exact truth about the things you've been taught. Now, if Luke thinks that way, can he believe that belief is this? If he really believed belief was this, he wouldn't have bothered to do the research for the third gospel. And you can think of John. These are written that what? That you may believe. Well, if belief isn't on evidence, there's no sense in writing the fourth gospel. So just dismiss the third and fourth Gospels because they don't fit that view of faith. See where you get in trouble? And so that's why you want to know the Scriptures well enough so when you encounter these ideas, you at least even if you can't open your mouth at that point because it may not be appropriate, um, at least in your mind, you haven't sucked in this, this chunk of, of bizarre falsehood and letting the flesh just take that piece of vanity and hot air and circulate it all through your soul. You filter it out right from the start. No, that's wrong. And you find you do this, it produces a clarity of thinking. Um, Here, I I love these two statements because this shows you the trouble people get into. Here's Julian Huxley, one of the most famous anti-Christians of the 19th and 20th centuries. I believe firmly that the scientific method, although slow and never claiming to lead to complete truth, is the only method which will give satisfactory foundations for beliefs. Now, he's used the word beliefs two ways there. He's saying, I believe in science. But if science, if belief means no evidence, then he's saying there's no evidence to believe in science. Well, clearly he's not saying that, but he's using the word. So if Huxley uses the word, I believe firmly the scientific method and so on, and he uses it in that sentence, we have the right to use it in the sense, I believe all the word of God. I believe all of the scriptures are inerrant. It's just as much of a statement connected to real fact as Huxley's statement. And then he turns right around after having said that, after saying that science never claims to lead to complete truth, okay, what does he say in the next statement? Quite assuredly, at, the present, at present, we know nothing beyond this world and experience. Now, how does he know that? If science is tentative, which gets back to a diagram I haven't shown in many moons, but it's that one that we go back to from time to time, and that's how we depict human knowledge. That if all human knowledge is trapped in that box, because down at the, the x-axis of this graph here is space, is time, and the y-axis is, is space, all human knowledge is contained in that fuzzy area, in the center area. And it obviously means that 
it's limited. And therefore, man, whatever he says, whatever he believes, whatever he asserts is true, or whatever he says is false, is coming out of this very limited database. And it's, it's all contingent. If the Bible isn't true, and there is no truth pre-existing this experience of man, then everything is contingent on tomorrow. Because tomorrow we may find a fact added to that that will change everything we believe. If you really believe that, that's what you'd have to wind up with. All knowledge is contingent on the next minute. So you have to hold your breath until the next minute comes to make sure that what you believe today won't change tomorrow because of new data. Well, now you arrive in tomorrow and you've got the same problem the next day. I can't really know that I know because tomorrow they might discover something else. You know, it's like all these health reports. First it's high carbs, then it's low carbs. Now it's uh, breathing, it's hazardous to your health or something. I mean, there's always something like this. And if you, you go nuts listening to this medical dribble that goes on day after day, week after week, millions of dollars spent on these profound conclusions. Well, that's an example of the limits of empirical knowledge. So if you get some smart aleck sometime that you feel like is really demeaning the word of God, you can prick the balloon with a little, little diagram and draw it on the back of a napkin and say, do you have more knowledge than that or not? You're, you've got limited knowledge. On what basis, then, can you know anything for sure? And force them to ask questions. Don't be in the position of always giving answers to questions. Make the other guy give answers to your questions. Just sit back and ask questions. It's, you know, that makes them think and it gives the heat, takes the heat off you. So just remember that. Don't be the, on the defensive all the time. Okay. Let's um, think about some of these events now. Looking at that diagram... Let's take, for example, the last thing we did. Let's talk about the future. And that's a topic that's kind of interesting, I guess, to the person in the street, Tim LaHaye's books and so on. So we've already, we've got a subject now, don't we? We, we know a noun. Your friends at work may not know this. You want to be humorous about it, just say, here, let me spell you out a word. I'll tell you what it means. You can use it in the next crossword puzzle you work with. Eschatology. Eschatology is the study of the future. Now, everyone has an eschatology. Everyone has an eschatology. It's not people, they don't, they, they have an opinion about what's coming on, what's going on. And... If you really want, if you doubt that, ask the person, you know, if, if there's a God, how do you reconcile yourself to him? And usually you come up with this balance, good works and bad works or something. But that's an eschatology. That's a belief in a future judgment, a future evaluation based on works. And most people believe that. Most religions accept that. So everyone has an eschatology. Did the communists have an eschatology? Absolutely. They believed in the dictatorship of the proletariat was going to come to pass. And they believed that that was their nirvana, social nirvana, when, when the world would get better and better. So everyone has an eschatology. Now, having said that, let's go down to the scriptures now. If they, if it, the question, oh, well, I don't believe in the second advent of Jesus. I mean, that, that's religious superstition. So... Now the point is that what is this eschatology built on in Scripture? Let's think about the basis of the claims that Christ would come again. All right. What's involved? Here's the process now. I'm going to go through the mental process that you go, go through. You're working with eschatology. You're working with the credibility of eschatology. The credibility of the second advent of Jesus. So where do you go in your head to put a foundation under that belief. Well, first of all, you say something you could say, and there's numerous ways. I'm just illustrating a few tonight. You say to yourself, well, it's the return of who? Who's involved in this eschatology? It's a person called Jesus Christ. 
Well, now, who is Jesus Christ? Look on your chart. We have four events, uh, actually five events, but four I've isolated there. A framework pamphlet number five, the birth of the king, the life of the king, the death of the king, and the resurrection of the king. Now, look at all the, the, the deep, deep truths that are linked to those four events. The hypostatic union, that Jesus Christ is undiminished deity, united with true humanity in one person without confusion forever. Now, that's the person we're talking about in our eschatology. So now all of a sudden the discussion about eschatology mushrooms, gets bigger and bigger because now we've got to deal with the God-man. Then we deal with the kenosis, impeccability, infallibility, the substitution of blood atonement. You know, I mean, obviously with a rank unbeliever, you're not going to get into all that. But I'm talking about what goes on in your head, not their heads. Your head. Because every question that you get deal with is an exercise spiritually for you to grow. Because think of it as Satan just throwing, throwing the darts. And so you're learning. Even though you might not have to confront verbally the person doing that, you know the person behind the person that's doing that. And so you use it as a, as a strength trainer. So when this thing comes, you say to yourself, okay, how would I handle that if we had an open discussion right this moment? So you would tie then eschatology to the person around whom eschatology is built, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, well, but you say, but that itself has a basis because the birth of the king is the, the doctrine associated with the birth of the king is the hypostatic union. What does the hypostatic union involve? God and man. Okay, now where do we go to get knowledge about God and man? Right back to creation again. So now we've linked the rapture of the church, which is eschatology, to Jesus, back to creation. You see how it fits together? You can't, have, you can't isolate one thing and have it defend itself. It's an integrated whole system. And this is very difficult to master for us in our culture today. Believe me, because I've worked for this for years. And I know the struggle I've had to try to get my head into the systematics of the Bible. It's because somewhere in our education, well, all of us have been educated basically after the 30s and 40s. And the idea of a unified field of truth in our whole education is gone, absolutely gone. When you learned history, when you were kids and you were learning history, you learned it as a pile of facts. That's all you learned it. Think about it. No purpose in history. Can you remember in any of your history courses a discussion about the purpose of history? I can't. I've met very few people ever trained that way to think. So what you are trained to do is think about what happened in 1492. What happened in 1215? What happened in 1776? What happened here? What happened in 1812? What happened in 1865? And it's, it's all dates and marbles. I'm not knocking the idea of dates here. I'm just saying the way you were taught prevents, prevents us from thinking structurally and systematically. It, we have very, very few people are trained to think systematically. They just can't think through issues. And that's where we as Christians, because we do have the truth of Scripture, we ought to be able to think through issues. The other, just the other day, let's take another contemporary issue. Uh, the issue that we've had discussing about the war. Is the war moral or immoral? And that's a discussion by itself. But we're not going to talk about Iraq being moral or immoral, but let me talk about how you would decide the question. What is your standard for answering the question whether war is moral or immoral? Where are you going to go for your answers? Where's your ruler? Where's your standard? That has to be discussed. So when you get into these questions, well, what do you think about this? Uh, perhaps a way of backing off the conversation and say, well, wait a minute, that's a great topic. But before we can talk about that, we've got to talk about how we would solve that question. What's the method that we're going to use to decide that question? Now, see, you, now you're getting into deeper questions. And you've got to do that because the gospel is a deep answer to a deep question. It's not a trivial thing. It can't be done in two and a half minutes. It's got to take time. And in our day, the gospel witnessing is a slow process because you're dealing with so much crud 
so much non-biblical trash that you have to kind of paw through the stuff to get to, to, so we can even talk the right words and have the right meanings. But let's go back to this war, whether it's moral or immoral. Let's look at the framework now. Here you have the framework. Where are you going to go in the framework to get a standard for war? First of all, people don't like war. Who does? You know, the anti-war crowd always makes it look like the people, except for them, are all for war. You name a person for war. Nobody's for war. Nobody likes war. Least of all the people in the military, because they once get shot. The people that are given their opinions are sitting safely in some place. They're not getting shot at. It's the guys in the service that are getting shot at. So when they say, these, oh, well, they just like war. Nonsense. That's a stupid statement. And challenge it. That is really a stupid statement to say somebody's for war. Everybody's against war. The issue is, how do we handle a situation that leads to war? How do we get peace that's real, that's just? That's the issue. And so what you have had in our country is not only have we lost the standard, we can't even find the standard to decide the question. A guy was writing in World Magazine, and he was out in the university, uh, out in uh, Washington State, and he mentioned the concept of just war. Now, anybody that studied history for any length of time knows the idea of just war has been around since at least the time of Augustine in the 4th or 5th century. So we have one of these academic nitwits on the campus who, when they hear the concept just war, thinks the guy meant, oh, it's just a war. Now, wait a minute. That's not what he said. He wasn't minimizing it and saying it was just a war. That's what this, this girl thought. He was saying, oh, it's just a war. How can you say that? How can you say it's just a war? It's a just war, lady. Listen to what I said. Just war. You ever hear about it? No. Well, go back and retake your history course and get smart. Just war comes out of Augustine's treatment of Scripture. Guess why Augustine dealt with it? Think about it. Why would Augustine discuss as a Christian? just war. What was going on in Augustine's day? You had Christians in the Roman army. And the Christians in the Roman army were leaving the Roman army, not because they were pacifists. They were leaving the Roman army because they had to swear allegiance to Caesar. And that was idolatry to them. It wasn't that they were against war. It wasn't that Christians couldn't be warriors. That's a, another piece of baloney from church history. There were Christians all through the Roman army. In fact, one legion was called the Thunder's Legion. They had lots of Christians in it. And they killed the enemy just like anybody else would kill the enemy. So, obviously, from the very beginning, Christians were involved in authorized violence. So the question then becomes, how do you handle the question? We'll go back to the framework. The cause of war. Why do we have wars in the first place? Go back down. We have something called the fall of man. Come on, let's get real here, folks. We had a real fall. We're all dying. We're all under the sentence of capital punishment. That's another thing. Capital punishment, we'll get onto that one. But we're all under capital punishment. You're dying right now? Yes, you are. You're aging. Look in the mirror. So if we are aging and we are dying, we are under a sentence of capital punishment. So what's the big deal with capital punishment? You die early, you die later. You're still under capital punishment sentence. And why, is, why are we all dying? Point number two in the framework. See, it goes back to the fall. And so people who, nobody likes war, but these, the sentimental crowd is offended by this. And now you know the source of their offense. These poor folks don't understand depravity. They have no concept of evil. A very, very sloppy, shallow idea of evil. Anyone who is against the sword of state is basically a very naive person who has no concept biblically of evil. So, again, the basis is in the framework, and we ought to be able to think this through. The, the fall goes on and on and on until when? Until the eternal state. There's going to be wars all the way down to the end. Is Jesus going to use capital punishment in the millennial kingdom? You bet he is. Capital punishment isn't going away until eternity begins. 
And when eternity begins, why can capital punishment then go away? Because everybody is death-proof. can't be any capital punishment then. Because good and evil are permanently separated. So what you have in that discussion is a total failure to perceive the truth of Scripture. Okay, let's go take another idea that circulates around. Well, I don't believe that there's only one way of salvation. I think that's pretty bigoted and narrow-minded. I think everybody can just choose their own way to God. Of course, the quick answer to that is, I believe in freedom and choice. Yes, I do. Everybody can go to hell in their own way. I agree with you. And, of course, they don't like when you say that. But you, one method you can use is to agree with the people, but agree in such a way that you undermine their agreement. It's fun to watch, because I love to watch the expression when, when I say something that people come on, you know, they say, I agree with that, but you use the judo approach and you just take it further. My people always say, well, can you accept a homosexual? Sure, I accept fornicators, adulterers. Might as well accept homosexuals. What's the problem with that? I have, I have no problem. Well, the moment you say that, you've agreed with them, right? Did I say I accepted them? Sure I did, along with everybody else. So, the way you do that is you formally agree with them, but the content of your agreement is totally against what they present their position. So in the framework now, you come back to this situation of the, uh, the exclusivity of the Word of God. Now, where in the framework do you pick that up? Think about in history of God's pedagogy. Where did God draw a line between a social group? Think about it. It's in the Old Testament. source of where missions had to start. Because before this guy, there was no missions. didn't have to be. Because God revealed himself in every people group. When did God stop revealing himself in every people group and concentrate on one group? Call of Abraham. So you go back to the call of Abraham, and then you look over on the right side, and you see, ooh, there's the basis for the exclusivity. The doctrine of election. God's choosing. He decides how he's going to run history. He doesn't cite a congressional committee to pass on whether you like this view of history or that view. It's he calls the shots. So anyone who is against exclusivity, the idea there's one way of salvation, is secretly against what? A sovereign God. See what's happening here? You smoke out the basis, just like we do with, with the people who are against cap punishment and, and war and so forth. They don't understand evil. The people who are against one way of salvation don't understand the nature of God. They can't think of a God who is sovereign. God has a right to choose however he chooses, without asking you or me or anyone else. Now, you've got a problem with that? Too bad. That's the way God is. So, exclusivity is related to election, but it's also related to something else. It's related to the second word on the right side, right after election. Justification. How is a sinner able to walk into the presence of a holy God? Because often people will say, oh, I just cannot believe in a God that sent people to hell. And the rejoinder to that? is I just cannot believe in a God who can put that, send a sinner to heaven. See what I mean? You can always take the sentence and reverse it. You just have to be creative. I'm not fast on my feet, so I have to think of these afterwards. So the third time I encounter them, I'll have them ready. But what you do is you reverse the sentence to reflect biblical truth. Yes, I can't believe in a God that sends sinners to heaven. Well, why can't you? Because he's violating his righteous standard. How would you feel if uh, somebody murdered your mother and the judge said, that's okay. The, the, the crime that, that this person did to your mother is so trivial, we're not going to even prosecute it. Now, excuse me, where's your, where, what happened to justice just then? You know, I, I lost it somewhere. There's no justice there. So, justification. See, it's the holiness of God that has to be Propitiated. It has to be met. So you can, you can go through any of these this way and, and, and work the framework around them. That's why I said all along this class is not a class in exegesis. We're not going every word tense on a verse. 
there's a place for that. And I'm a great proponent of that. But that's not what this class is about. This class is about seeing the framework as a totality and putting it together so you can go out there and use it. Um, another, uh, another example um, that people would say is the hypocrites issue. Oh, there are hypocrites in the church. Yeah, right. And you know how you can reverse that? Think about it. There's some clever ways of reversing that. One of which is, to do, of course, a defensive approach is, yeah, there's, there's, there's fallen people. It gets back to the issue of evil. Evil hasn't been totally eradicated yet. So, yeah, there's going to be hypocrites in the church. But you can also turn it around on a Romans 1 basis and an Acts 14 and Acts 17 basis and say, well, there's probably more hypocrites outside the church than are in it. Oh, what do you mean by that? People go around and say they don't believe in God and then turn around and make moral judgments. It's hypocritical. If you don't believe in God, you have no basis telling me I'm wrong. Because I'm going to tell you that I, I, I don't care what you think. Because you don't count in my life. It's I that counts. Period. I don't care what you think. So what are you going to do with that one? So you have to have an absolute standard of reference. So here the same people who are denying that God exists. And say, I don't believe in God. Then, I know, okay. But you're acting as though God is there every time you make a moral judgment. Consider these, these statements that Art brought up here before. Now, here these guys are. That um, um, Here's Darlene Glanton of the Chicago Tribune. Here, listen to this word. Christian conservatives have declared war on civil libertarians for the soul of America. In other words, she's complaining. Not that they're doing it, but these guys are all complaining that this is wrong. not a Christian. You, you got a problem with that? What's, what's wrong with that? I don't know what's wrong with that. And then force them to come up with some standard. Well, you know where they're going to get the standard from. It's their conscience. Well, where did their conscience come from? Because they're made in God's image. That's why they know it's wrong. We know it's right. Everybody knows it's wrong. Come on, stop it. And you know that God is behind what's right and what's wrong. So let's be big boys and girls and move on. So that's how you, 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 you've got to work with this, with the people who do this to you. Um, okay, let's look at um, a few more uh, examples of, of uh, the frame of reference working here. You'll notice that in the right side, uh, there's an awful lot of those key events that have to do with sanctification. And those events are chiefly where, if you read devotional literature, you'll see that it comes out of that period of time. For example, what's the most famous devotional book of all the Bible? Everybody cites it. We all identify with it. Book of Psalms. And who wrote most of the Book of Psalms? David. And if you look in the frame of reference, what is the doctrine that is being revealed through that period of time? Sanctification. So, almost like the Holy Spirit leads us into those scriptures that fit what we need. You know, we have a hunger and a thirst for how do we grow in the Christian life? How do we manage in the Christian life? Where do we go? We go to those places. Why is that? Because in those eras, in those events, that was what God was revealing. David was a guy in the center of the wisdom literature of the Bible who illustrated all these truths in his personal life. He illustrated sin. He illustrated grace. He illustrated the ability to trust God and move on and so forth. So, again, it, it ties together uh, the, um, the use of Scripture. Okay, we have some time left. So, uh, I'm going to open it up to the floor for any questions on the framework so far and what we've done. Um, are there any issues that you maybe want to see how are linked into the framework? I'll see if I can do a job on it spontaneously. But um, issues that you might have run across uh, with people and so on that we might just kind of relate to the frame of reference. I'm sure I haven't covered everything here tonight. Yes. Oh, I saw your mouth open. <laughs> George, you always have interesting discussions. Well, I, you know, I was just thinking, when you were talking about the 
get back to the conscious thing. And uh, I, I don't know, with all due respect, it, you know, it sounds real good when we talk about it theoretically. But then when you get it, when you get somebody into that, they don't give up so easily. Oh no, no. So, you know, I mean, maybe if we have time, maybe you can drill in on that a little bit more and give some some of the arguments. Just go a little deeper into into the banter back and forth that that you would ultimately get to the point where they would scratch their head and say, I guess you're right. You know, I gotta go home and think about this. You know what I mean? Right. That's that's all I can really do with these guys is lovingly get them to scratch their heads and say, All right, fair enough. I'll go home and think about yeah. But that what you've done the job, George, at that point. Yeah, I mean, it's getting them to that. Oh, I know. But you, you can't always get people to that statement. I mean, think about before we get guilty conscience of ourselves and our efforts, just kind of reward yourself with the idea, did Jesus convince everybody? Did Jesus convince anyone in his own personal family other than his father and mother? I often, I often quote this. He must not have been living the Christ life. He didn't win anybody, his sisters to, or brothers to the Lord, did he, until after he died. Now, what do you make of that one? These kids saw him all growing up. Why didn't they believe? Jesus wasn't stupid. We have, a, you know, in Luke 2, at 12 years old, he already knows the scriptures very well and already has a sense of his messianic mission here. So, what's the deal? Well, the deal is, Romans 1, people suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The deal is, what did Adam and Eve do in the garden? They fled to the bushes. Why did they flee the to the bushes? To hide from God. Now, that's why it's volatile. It's a volatile thing to bring up a spiritual issue because immediately when you bring up anything that smacks of within a hundred miles of the gospel, all of a sudden you're going to engender all the suppression mechanisms. And that's what you're dealing with. There may be people that you can't even read who have secretly in their heart listened to you. You can't tell that either. You can't tell when you sow seed. Sometimes you think you haven't sowed any seed and five years later it's sprouting somewhere. Well, do you remember back when you said that and I put you off? I've seen that. So you can't always judge a book by its cover, by the response that you get. But, but what George is saying is right. I'm just trying to, trying to give a comfort in the direction, the overall direction of not leaving uh, the boat. Like, imagine a person drowning. Okay? You're trying to reach down to, to pull them out of the water. Well, you're a goner if you step out of the boat. The point is, you have to have a platform that you stay in while you're reaching for them. And what I'm saying is, you've got to stay inside the biblical frame of reference while you're doing all this, whatever it is you're doing. Because the moment you step out onto so-called neutral ground, you're in the water with them. So you can't do that. You've got to stay within the frame of Scripture, always. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes we don't know. We get hit with something, and we really don't know. But, but think again, what if we said in church history? That has happened to the church. It's not just happened to you personally, it's happened to the church. The church has been hit with heresies over the centuries and didn't know what to do with it. So what did the church do? Think about historic. We've gone through church history, I've summarized it a number of times. What were some examples where the church got hit with something and they didn't know how to deal with it, but yet eventually they did? The heresies about Jesus, first 400 years. What did the church finally do? They went back to the scripture. And they thought about it and they prayed about it and they had arguments about it until they discerned what the scripture said. So that's going to have to be the response sometimes. It happens to me many times. I get hit with something. I'm not sure what the scripture says about that. So I have to go back and rehash it and think about what is this? Sometimes asking other Christians who worked in these areas. When I first became a Christian at MIT, I got hit all the time. As, I mean, when you, when you become a Christian in that kind of a hostile environment, I mean, the shells start flying right away. And so what do you do? You go talk to some older Christians that have been through the battle a little bit, taking a few hits, and say, hey, what do I do with this? 
and then they, you know. So you're not always going to have an answer. You may uh, have the idea of the framework, but that doesn't mean you know all the answers. It just means you know where to go to get the answers. And you should have confidence there are answers sufficient to this situation, whatever it is that you face. But that doesn't mean you know what that is right away. You've got to dig a little bit. But don't be ashamed of that. I mean, that's, we all have to dig like that. And the church has been doing it for 2,000 years. So, hey, so what? I take a, you know, two months to, th- to think it through. It took the church 400 years to get Jesus straight. It took the church 1,000 years to figure out what happened on the cross. Get that straight. So, don't be too hard on yourselves when those things happen. Just always go back to the scriptures. And go back to men and women who, who worked with this thing. That's how the body of Christ works. We help one another. And we're not going to be experts. In, uh, we can't be experts in the whole thing. The problem, going back to what George said, people want to hold on in the final analysis. In the final analysis. The problem is, man wants to be his own God. That's the final bottom line. Always. We know our sin natures. And the way to think it is reflect on your own flesh. You, you've fought with your flesh ever since you've become a Christian and you know it. And you know how in the flesh you act. You know how in the flesh you want to do it your way. Even knowing what God wants. I want to do it my way. Period. Well, that's how this other person's thinking right now. I want to do it my way. So the battle is not necessarily an intellectual battle. It's a spiritual battle. That's why, uh, oftentimes, it's not even what you say. Um, in, in the local body, whatever church group you're in, if you've been in there long enough, and this is my big gripe about people that float from church to church and don't stay in one place for any length of time, and I mean, there's legitimate reasons for moving around, but you, you'll see people move every six months. That's what I'm talking about. And if they do that, you know what they do? They miss out on the continuity of the Holy Spirit working in people's lives. And I mean, the Holy Spirit does things slowly sometimes. It takes years to do this and put it together. And so they miss the big story and they don't see how the Holy Spirit works in these situations. So you have to get back to watch how the Holy Spirit works. And when you do, you will see how actions which are done in gracious love, often are the breakthrough. And I think all of us can remember an event or two where it wasn't what the people said. It was their reaction to what people did. And that shocked them. Because the the life goes along with the word. And the life is a three-dimensional, four-dimensional in time. It's a four-dimensional projection. Whereas the word is only audio. So it's not just arguing. It's, it's showing grace, but it's also showing the fact that we believe in truth. And that's a, that's a demonstration. And that's what's scaring people. I really believe some of these articles, that some of these statements um, that, uh, for example, this one that I just read you. Just think about this for a minute. What does this person fear? Christian conservatives have declared war on civil libertarians for the soul of America. Why, what do you think is on this person's mind? What are they thinking about when they say that Christian conservatives have declared war on civil libertarians? Now, that's code words for what issues. What, think about the issues that are involved here. What are the civil libertarians pushing that the Christian conservatives are against? Licentiousness. Exactly. And, 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 and they're relaxing the redefining of marriage. The redefines, well, everybody's got a right to whatever, you know, concept. And they're the civil libertarians. So the Christian conservatives declared war on the civil libertarians. Wait a minute. Think about the dynamics here. Who's declared war? The civil libertarians were the ones that started the war. They're the ones that wanted to go their own independent way and redefine reality according to the flesh. 
So they're the ones that have declared war. And we can't let them accuse us of, defi- of declaring war. They're the ones that started the war. We're just holding to the standard that's been there long before 1776, pal. The standards we're talking about go back all the way to the time of Moses and before. So we haven't changed. Who's changed? See? So right there, you can't even, you can't even agree on the sentence. Because we're both loading that sentence with two different things. Last Sunday, uh, Dennis was doing a thing on on the authority of Scripture. And afterwards, we were talking about language and so on. And he came to this statement. This is a beautiful way to kind of close out what I'm saying. Think of in John 11. I think it's in John 11 where Caiaphas, the high priest, says about Jesus that it is better for one person to die and the whole country go down the tubes. Caiaphas said those words. John the Apostle wrote the Gospel in which he quoted Caiaphas. Here's Caiaphas. Here's John. They both say exactly the same sentence. Do both of those men mean the same thing? By that same words in the same sentence? I don't think so. What does Caiaphas mean? It's pragmatically useful to knock this guy off and get rid of the problem so we don't have the Romans coming in here. What does John see that has just been said? That Jesus Christ will die for the sins of the world. It is better for one man to die than the whole of mankind to go to the sea. So here we have two people using the Aramaic or Greek language, Koine Greek, whatever it was they spoke. Both of them use the same vocabulary, They use the same subject, the same predicate, and they put the period in the same place in the sentence. And by golly, they totally disagree on what they just said. See how hard communication is? Extremely difficult. Because we're in this spiritual battle. Where we can't even use the words the same way. When we use the word S-I-N, that is misunderstood today. I doubt the average American could have a clue what we mean by S-I-N. Not a clue. So, see how hard it is? That's why the gospel witnessing in our generation is getting harder and harder and harder to do. I've had missionaries tell me that they can come... The stuff they've learned in the mission field, they're bringing back to this country now. Because they found, in working with deeply pagan societies, they've discovered ways of, of getting the gospel to them. And one way is they found they have to go through something like the framework. Amazing. 1985, in the mid-80s, the whole group of New Tribes missionaries realized this. And they've changed the total approach of the way they do translate the Bible. They've changed the whole approach of the way they evangelize villages now. Based on this concept. You've got to have the totality or you lose the pieces. The natives will take the piece. And they don't mean to do this. It's all the syncretism, all the crud that's in the flesh. And they just twist and turn and suppress the stuff. And the gospel never comes across. People, oh, well, gee, they're supposed to be Christians. They're acting like this. Never understood the gospel in the first place. That's why. So it's a struggle. And so these guys are telling me that, you know, you folks in the West, you're, you're encountering the problems we've been dealing with in the, in the jungles for, for decades. So thankfully, some people are getting their act together and rethinking how we do this. But the days of handing somebody a track and in five minutes lead them to the Lord are pretty well gone. The people, you can do that if the Holy Spirit's been working in their life and this is just the, the last of ten hundred events. Yes, you can do that. But normally speaking, that's not how we're going to be leading people to the Lord. It's going to be a long, arduous task to do that. And it's going to involve a lot of patience, a lot of clarification. But that's the world we live in. So it's fun, black and white. Let's close the word. Yes, go ahead, John.
Well, that's a good question Charles raised is about the, the mystery of why God's own people groomed for centuries uh, the channel through which we got the Bible in the analysis of in Jesus' day, only a minority believed, the totality didn't. The answer to that, in a nutshell, uh, we could spend hours answering that, but in a nutshell, Charlie, the best scripture to deals with that is Romans 9, 10, 11. That's the center, center in Romans. Paul has to deal with that because he's a Jew and he's getting frustrated because he's going to fellow Jews, trying to witness to them, and gets rebuffed. And so he has, thankfully, three whole chapters in which he outlines what God's doing in that situation. But the answer is in there. The blindness comes upon Israel. It's a special kind of blindness that God has allowed to happen. And it gets involved there, but that's the place to go for that answer. There is an answer to that. Very few. Very few. Well, they're stiff-necked, but, but the good news is, Charlie, that if you take a t- a four numbers, uh, the total number of Jews that now believe in Jesus, the Messianic Jews, uh, by the way, there's a lot of them in Baltimore, Messianic Jews... And the bottom of your fraction put in the totality of the total world population of Jews. So you get a ratio. You get a percent of the total population of Jews that believe in the Messiah. Then you take the big number of the totality of non-Jews, the Gentiles, and take the number of professing Christians among the Gentiles. And this is pointed out to me, by the way, by a Messianic Jew. And guess which fraction is better, bigger? It's interesting that there are more percent of Jews that believe in the Messiah than Gentiles. Uh, it's rather shocking. The reason why it acts, comes out that way in the math is because there's that many more Gentiles. But, but, it's, but it's a sobering statistic. Well, we've got to close, and we'll, I'll be around for a little bit for a question and answer. Father, we thank you for our time together. We thank you that you have provided in Scripture that which is sufficient unto every good work, that we may be equipped and thoroughly furnished to every, every good work. We thank you for the sufficiency of the Scripture because it's a testimony to the authority of the Scripture. And we thank you that you give us the Holy Spirit to illuminate as well as to guide us into the great saints of the past whom he has taught. And we thank you that we can learn through church history, we can learn through the scriptures, and we can learn through the circumstance of our life as we put this together, seeking to walk by faith. Thank you in Christ's name. Amen.